0: Have been in a series now going through the book of First Peter, if you guys would like want to open up to first Peter chapter two. I'm going to read a little bit of a section here, <clears throat> a quick little uh, backstory before I jump in, um, in case uh, you're a little bit unfamiliar, uh, getting caught up to speed. Uh, This book is uh, about—it's a letter written to a group of uh, Christians that are scattered throughout the ancient Roman Empire, which, uh, for the most part, has uh, proved to be a hostile territory for Christians to try to really flourish within—throughout the Roman Empire. And yet, at the same time, uh, these Christians are really trying to be faithful to Jesus— in spite of the hostility that they're facing. And uh, this letter is written by a guy named uh, Peter. He was the apostle, one of the leaders in the early church. And he was writing to encourage them to maintain their fidelity, maintain their faithfulness, maintain their steadfastness to the way of God. Um, Yes, uh, that might translate over into some challenges and hardships and struggle, And yet, his big aim is to say that, look beyond that, because beyond that, God is with you guys. God will ultimately bring about the final victory in your lives. Just hold fast, hold true. God is good. He'll get you through this. That's the big idea. And in short, where we're at right now is he's basically writing to them to help them to understand, here's the type of people you should be. So, again, maybe some of you guys woke up this morning, just like Emily said, like, Jesus, please let there be a financial update. Maybe some of you are like, Lord, let there be some sort of instruction as to how and the type of person I'm supposed to be. You're welcome on two counts. Um, the second thing is to just consider the fact is, is that God is inviting through the writings of, of Peter, and he's encouraging people to, to be the type of people that are good, that are good. Live out goodness. That's his, his big aim. And what I want to do right now is we're going to read, we're going to transition to begin to take a look at this. So chapter 2, verse 17, uh, that we will begin to look at. In fact, I'm just going to pick it up a couple of verses prior to that. Uh, by now, if you've been with us for any length of time, you're, you're very familiar with this. Maybe even memorize it if you have a good job. Um, we're going to read from verse 13 on to verse 17. Verse 17 is the main passage that we're going to be looking at. In fact, the one little phrase that we're going to be looking at is love the brotherhood. And we'll pick it up where we uh, left off last week. So verse Thirteen, second, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of God. I want to pray, and we'll jump in. So, Jesus, right now, we invite you to reshape, reformat, reconstruct our hearts. God, help us to become the type of people that are like you in everything that we do. Uh, We have, all of us, I'm sure collectively, have a long ways to go. And yet, what we hope for, what we long for, what we desire... Is in this journey got to become like you, so we entrust this morning in your hands and we pray these things in jesus name, amen, which I'll grab a seat so we started last week really focusing on this little phrase "Love the brotherhood, love the brotherhood, and what we've been really pointing out is uh sorry, you can go back to the next slide, um go forward there you go is looking at this idea that basically he says goodness looks like and we've been looking at six different things that he's kind of been identifying i'll just go through them real quickly in case you missed them number one he says goodness looks like subjecting ourselves to um human institutions for the lord's sake again the big emphasis of the lord's sake again we don't just blindly submit or subject ourselves to you know government government officials and whatnot it's ultimately for the lord's sake the big idea behind that again um i'm not going to go into this teaching you're more than welcome to go back on our website just check it out And then, secondly, he says, "We as followers of Jesus doing good looks like taking sin seriously. Uh, We recognize sin is like a virus. Like a virus, it is a virus that brings destruction." Um, And it spreads. It spreads, right? It's highly contagious, and it's very easy to become part of this highly infectious disease called sin. And so what he's urging, followers of Jesus, is that goodness actually looks like taking sin seriously, not giving it a pass. Thirdly, it looks like um, acting on the freedom that God gives us, ultimately, so that we do do good. Fourthly, it's honoring everybody, including the emperor. Again, we saw this a couple weeks ago. Uh, today we'll be focusing on, again, the last little section where it says love the church, and then next week we'll take a look at the idea, the concept of fearing God. What does that look like? So again, each of these in the big context is doing good. Uh, Peter has an idea, has an agenda. In fact, I would even say that the entire New Testament has an agenda for people who devote themselves to following Jesus. It's ultimately to be the type of people that do good. Again, as I mentioned last week, that I think all of us can think of Christians that do not live up to that idea. We would call them, quote-unquote, hypocrites. And I think all of us have a horror story where we have seen Christians not living good, not doing good, not acting according to goodness, and living in a way that's opposite to that. And it's highly scandalous and offensive and frustrating. And uh, the larger the platform oftentimes, whether it be a pastor who's like of a megachurch and does something scandalous or horrible uh, and then brings and just breeds all sorts of brokenness and destruction. And and so, but at the same time, he's also not saying, listen, go out and grab a sword and fight. counterstrike your enemy. Kill them blood for blood, eye for eye, you know, slice for slice. He's not saying that either. Nor is he saying... Take everything you have and go become a doomsday prepper. Go sell everything. Go live in some wilderness in Idaho and raise a ranch and, I don't know, hatch chickens and do all these. Churn your own butter and somehow do all of these things by getting out of society entirely and completely. That's it's not what he's saying either. What he's saying is that you have to live within the culture, but don't become like the culture. Don't become colonized by the culture. Don't become colonizers necessarily by subverting and aggressively attacking other people. But Be the type of people that do good. That do good. It's, it's, a, it's a revolution. It's a revolution of goodness is what we've been describing it as. And again, if you're, in case you're kind of a little bit fuzzy, what does goodness look like? How does he define good? There you go. That That's what he looks like. It looks like defining good by these ways. Today, I want to look at specifically the idea of where he says love, the brotherhood. And we looked at this beginning last week, and the big idea, these are simply two words. Um, Agape, which we get the word for love from, but then uh, adelphos, which is where we get brotherhood. And what I want to really focus on is we started looking last week is that each... New Testament writer has their own way of identifying, like, what does love look like? And we kind of started focusing on what John the Apostle said. Again, so we kind of used First Peter to springboard into First uh, John and looking at the idea of love. So I want to continue that. And last week, we looked at the idea where John gives to us, you know, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And it begins to unpack for us all of this. In fact, I'll just continue reading. It says, whoever loves has been born of God, and whoever knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, which is the big way of basically saying the sacrifice for our sins. And then he goes on to say, verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There's that horizontal aspect of love. He says, no one has ever seen God. Uh, Yet if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So last week, we looked at kind of the beginning part of this, and we just, the the word agape, we're asking a bigger question. What does agape mean? Because if what Peter is telling us is it says agape, love, the delphos, brotherhood, which, again, we'll look at in just a moment, but in, in short, spoiler alert, it basically means anyone who's a Christian. I'm going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm sure if I were to ask you, how many of you know Christians? some Christians, maybe in your life, that are straight-up annoying? I think all of us, at some point, would, would have a laundry list of Christians that you know show up at, they seem to always come out of the woodwork at around Thanksgiving time. They come out, they come, they join, and they just annoy everybody. And the big question is, how, do you, how are you expected to love someone that's so exceptionally annoying? Again, so what we're trying to focus on first and foremost is this idea of love. What is love? So before we even begin to talk about loving and where that love and how that love is to be directed, we're really trying to muse upon the idea what is that love that is then to make its way from us, through us, to somebody else. So again... What we looked at in terms of a definition, we just simply said this, a long definition, a short definition. Long definition is that this is a decision to act, uh, review, but the idea that love costs something. True love, genuine love is, is not cheap. It costs, it's very costly. Uh, in a short way, we can just describe it as loyal love. Loyal love. And in fact, I would even go so far if I had more time to unpack this, that this is what you and I need more than anything in our lives. Would you agree with that? We need loyal love. We need to know that in spite of who we are, in spite of what we've done, in spite of the filthiness or defilement that we sense or we oftentimes engage with, we just need to know, is there anybody in this universe that will be loyal to me in spite of who I am? And the overwhelming answer of the Bible is that yes. He doesn't exist on TikTok. He's not on Instagram. He doesn't have a social media handle. His name is Yahweh, and he's revealed himself through Jesus. He loves you. He's demonstrated his loyal, faithful love to you that in spite of how horrible of a human we have all been, he's loved us. He's demonstrated that love to us. So, again, we're looking at this idea of love. So let's jump in and uh, kind of summarize. This hopefully won't be too long, but um, I want to jump in next one. That, first of all, we saw last week that this love is from God. It comes from God. Secondly, we'll take a look, and this is where kind of we're caught up to date right now is. Uh, secondly, we see, based upon that passage in 1 John, is that God himself is love. Listen to how 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says this. For God is love. What does this mean? What does this mean, that God is love? I think, probably in short, the basic answer is that the very elemental trait of who God is, the way that God acts, God's disposition is love. He loves. I want to make a quick little note. So, A lot of times I think Christians can very easily uh, select or be selective in terms of certain traits. Um, And the, the fact is the type of trait that you select with regard to that reflects the nature or the character of who God is Whatever trait that is that becomes sort of the embodiment of your community, um, it will shape you. So, for example, um, again, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but some of you, I, I know because I have conversations with a lot of y'all. But um, if, if you've been a part of a church community or, or a pastor or a leader in your life, let's say, for example, that person or that church community has predominantly focused upon the trait of God's wrath, that he's angry with sin. He's a holy God. All of those which I would say are accurate. Bible describes God as having wrath towards things that disrupt or destroy or defile um, his goodness or vandalize his goodness uh, so that's it's not it 's not uh, out of the ordinary or out of the pale of the scope of reality of who God is um, but for example also is God holy yes God is holy but if those become the predominant traits that get emphasized and focused upon that will shape that community is a certain type of people. So, for example, if you came from a church community that predominantly focuses upon the wrath of God, the type of person that you will begin to be shaped into is one that focuses upon what's right, what's wrong. You will oftentimes be a community that selects certain sins that you safeguard against and that you, dis, that you find others that are not keeping up to standards that are not living up to that. And there's a tendency to oftentimes become condescending towards those that are not keeping up or living up to those standards. And there's a tendency to become self-righteous. So hypercritical oftentimes becomes sort of the matrix by which you begin to view the world. Now again, I would say that that becomes a caricature of the type of people that God intends. So again, when John is emphatic, he says God is love. He is selectively choosing a a perspective a specific trait of who God is and says, this is the predominant trait that God wants to be identified for. doesn't mean that he does not display wrath, like I said. It does not not mean that God is also identified as holy, all of which is true. But John is choosing to say that as we focus upon this, it will change us into becoming a type of people. doesn't mean that we give sin a pass, because we already talked about that. People that are deeply committed to good, will take sin seriously. But the predominant factor that John is saying, meditate, consider, reflect upon this trait of who God is. He's a God of love. That shapes us into the type of people that look like this God. So again, he wants us to identify that this God is love. If you maybe, as I mentioned, came from a background or a church that tend to hyper-focus on certain elements other than this, and you have maybe found yourself becoming a type of person that is anything other than loving. My, my hope would be that the love of God that gets put on display, we will continue to unpack here, will begin to become the predominant force that shapes and reframes you around this the good news of who God is. All right, so... Thirdly, I want to take a look at this idea that he goes on to say that not only is love from God, not only is God is love, but then thirdly, we see that this love is manifest. So take a look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. John tells us, the love of God was made manifest among us. God sent his son into the world. The big idea here, the word manifest basically means take upon flesh, take upon uh, bone, embodied itself. Um, um, how many of you guys like... Mexican food, specifically carne asada, right? The big idea, carne, is the word taking upon flesh. Meat, that's the big idea. That's the word that's essentially used here. this idea that God takes upon flesh. God becomes human, steps into this world. It can be seen, visualized, sensed, known. This is who Jesus was. He comes in this world. God is now seen, felt, touched, realized. There's a visceral reaction, reality of who God is. That this is what Jesus ultimately was all about. That God was not aloof from his creation. God did not stand beyond uh, the pale of his creation and then just simply cast judgment. God steps into it. And this is what we see. That God's love, God's love was manifested. It stepped into our world. Look. Let's say, for example, you're somebody that says, ah, oh, yeah, I love a certain segment of people or certain people, but you never involve yourself in that. Let's say, for example, if you had a dad. Men, the utter importance of you having a manifested presence in the life of your children is absolutely essential. Because you can claim, yeah, I love my kids, I love my family, You know, I I buy them shoes and I take them on vacations once every couple years and and I'm around every single night though on your chair, smoking your pipe, whatever it is that you do every single night in terms of these habits. But you're not actually present in terms of, you know, being with them, playing games with them, uh, getting dirty with them, all these types of things, manifesting, being manifested. Do your kids have the right to question your love? I would argue absolutely, totally. Because on the one hand, there's a claim to love. Yes, I love my kids. But on the other hand, there's there's an absence of a manifestation. It's not manifested. It's not present. It's not actually there. But this is entirely contrasted from the gospel. That God says, I love fallen, broken, messed up, sinful humanity. And God says, "I I will demonstrate my love. Not just by... You know, giving scripture, or sending prophets, or writing the Bible, or whatever. God says, "I will step into their mess with them and make my presence known, my healing presence known." And so, what Jesus does. He comes in. He brings healing to people that have broken bodies. He re brings uh, re re, uh, re- uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't even know what I'm trying to say here. Brings people from the margins back into the culture, that we're shoved off to the side. It's his way of basically saying, you have a place to belong. This is God. This is who God is. Everything that we can know ultimately in the final sense about who God is, we can see through Jesus because Jesus perfectly represents the heart of God. So we see that love is manifest. Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of America, said this, It says, it is true and evident from Scripture that the essence of all true religion, which is just another way of saying Christianity, is God's love. As your heart is filled with God's love, it will vent itself. You will find or make ways to express it in good deeds. When a fountain is filled with water, it will send forth streams. The big idea that he's basically saying is that, look, a fountain that's overflowing, that has filled to the brim... You bump it, it will ultimately spill out. This is who God is. God is filled with love. We just saw that. God is love. He's the source of it. God, God is really where all this love comes from. God overflows with love. And the way that we sense or know the overflow of God's is love is we look at Jesus. And then lastly, we see this idea of the motivation, um, that God's love becomes the very motivation for us to love. So listen to how John breaks this down for us in verses 10 through 11. He says, this is love. Not that we are agape. This is agape. Not that we have agape God, but that he agaped us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the manifestation element. And then he goes on to say, but if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's pretty simple. And again, I don't want to overcomplicate this because there's, there's really nothing more to complicate. Uh, it's, it's fairly simple. The big idea that he's saying is that, If God so loved us, and if we've been swept up into this vertical love of God, then that will have an impact upon how we see, on a horizontal level, others that bear the image of God. And again, the word that he uses here, just in conclusion or closing, is this idea that he describes. um, Agapeos, agape, adelpho, brotherhood. It's just the the two words. Have, brotherly, love for all. The big idea that he's saying is that, look, as we live out, seek to live out, and why does John, or why does does really the entire New Testament give us that instruction to love other Christians? Well, the only thing I can assume is back then, it's no different than it is today. Christians can be annoying. It's as simple as that. They can absolutely drive us crazy to the point of like, how do we put up with other people? The answer to that is just the way that we put up with that. The way that we enter into that is, first of all, we let our hearts get absolutely overwhelmed by the love that God has for us. That's why I said, even last week, before we even go out to try to say, like, how am I supposed to love other people that are annoying? I said, don't even try that. First of all, just pause, stop, reflect, meditate. Upon the love that God has for you, how does he see you? How does he treat you? How does he respond to you? How does he show you care and affection and loyalty? Has he done that to you? If he hasn't done that to you, then you've got a whole other issue to deal with. But the point that I would make is this, is that if God has shown you all of these things, then the question then becomes, how am I then to be motivated to love others? This is a big idea that basically the entire new testament is just trying to direct us towards so lastly i just want to think about this idea of what love looks like because the book of corinthians i think gives us a really important and i would even say kind of elaborate unpacking as to what this love looks like it's the famous passage that you often hear at weddings you know it's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Uh, what's really fascinating to me about the backstory of this is that Paul, the apostle, is writing this to a community of Christians that I would say had exhibited a very highly toxic form of Christianity. I mean, the Christian church, when they came together, they had quarrels, there was division, people were like dividing over whether or not uh, racial inequalities were were right or dividing over politics and dividing, all the same stuff that you and I are dividing over today. I mean, if social media existed back then, all the same trolls would be online doing the exact same thing that they're doing today. And what Paul's is basically saying, guys, look, we've got we to gotta do this differently. We've got to act differently. We've got to love each other. And then he goes on to say, in the context of all of this, and I'll just read it and I'll finish. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, then I'm just a noisy gong and I'm a clean cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith so that as to remove mountains, but do not love, I am nothing. If I gave away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, in other words, live radically self-sacrificial, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. So it's, it's possible to actually be outwardly, very externally um, self-giving. But internally, you you're being eaten up by... Disdain towards other people. Then he goes on to give us a definition. He says, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things. Love believes. All things hopes, all things endures, all things. Verse eight: Love never ends, or never fails. And the big idea that I think we ought to take away from this revelation, which is what this is—it's revelation. These aren't my opinions. I'm not standing up here saying, "Hey, here's my thinking about this subject matter." Go out and do the best you can to live according. This, I'm just—I'm giving to you divine revelation from god that says here is what love looks like here's what we are invited into allow transform and change and reshape reformat our hearts and then to use that as a template to then go love other annoying of my dad parentheses annoying human beings here's here's how it's done and here's what it looks like by the way and i'm not even going to get into examples of like think about how many times We may be guilty, or we know people that have been extremely guilty of just trolling others on social media, just using it as a platform to rant upon other people that frustrate and and anger them, or to use it as a platform to simply exploit other people that bear the image of God to make them look bad. I mean, this is something that Paul even talked about in the book of Corinthians. He says, look, you guys, they're taking each other to court, is what Paul describes. You guys are taking each other to court. You're, You're bringing your beefs in front of non-Christians, and you're letting them decide for you what's going on, Paul actually asks this question. He goes, wouldn't it be better for you just take a hit monetarily than to defame and destroy not only the name of God, but also to drag another brother or another sister through the mud? Paul says, shame on you guys. Like, like literally, you're bringing shame. Like, it's, it's literally a shameful act to not be willing to bear a hit, to take a hit, in exchange of trying to bring protection. Again, there are occasions where sinful actions need to be exploited. I want to be really clear on this. If a pastor or a church leader or another Christian takes advantage of another person or they're uh, destructive in the behavior or they're abusive, physically sexual, whatever, that needs to be exploited. It needs to be brought to life, of course. But the point, for the most part, most of the issues that we deal with they are just, they're just issues that we just disagree with. And we use that as a platform to drag another person who bears God's name, another brother or sister, through the mud. And I think the whole teaching this morning is like, look, love chooses a different path. And I'm going to finish with this little practice. In fact, I'll have Mikey come on up and he'll close us in a song. So I want to think about this idea of this concept of love, which is love the brotherhood. And again, the word brotherhood or brother or brethren or whatever, however your Bible translates this, is the predominant word that gets used or translated to, to describe other people that are part of the community so, community of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So what that means is that in this room right now, you might not even know this. You might be sitting next to this, a complete stranger to you. You might not have ever seen them in your entire life. But if that person has been accepted and loved by Jesus, they are your brother and sister in Christ. So maybe you get to know them. <laughs> Because that's the simple fact, right? You're like, oh my gosh, I don't even really like this person. They are a brother or a sister. You might be like, oh my gosh, you should date that person, but they are a brother and sister. You might have some issues they got to deal with. Maybe you need a pastor or someone else to help you, a third party. But the point of the matter, they are your brother and sister. They might annoy me, but they are your brother and sister. The big idea is when we think about this concept of love, I heard a practice years ago, and if you were to substitute or supplement the word love for the name Jesus in, for example, that passage of 1 Corinthians, um, I just want to read it to you with the name Jesus put into the place of the word love. So how about we all stand? I'm going to read this over to you guys, and I want you, as I read this, to, to imagine, to think about the fact this is the type, this is the quality of love that Jesus has for you. So number one is the invitation is to be transformed by this love. Let this love reshape your heart. And then secondly, on a horizontal level, maybe this becomes a moment for you to now begin to ask God, God, help to make me into this type of person that loves other people, no matter how annoying they might be, in this same qualitative type of love. So again, why don't you close your eyes if you want. uh, Just listen to what I'm about to say. Verse 4 says, Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is not full of envy. He's not boastful. Jesus is not arrogant. He's not rude. He doesn't insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. He doesn't rejoice over wrongdoing. He always rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things for you. Jesus endures all things. Jesus never fails. So before you even begin to think about the idea of loving others, let this reality reshape you first of all to know that you are loved and then all the other aspects of how that play out will get implemented at some point but first just revel be marveled by the love that god has for you we're going to sing we will partake of communion we have some elements in the front and in the back if you'd like as we uh, play this song to uh, go come forward to or back grab the elements and then we will partake together. If you would like, you're more than welcome to go get your kiddos and bring them back in and they can partake with you if you would like. Uh, if not, we'll just do this together. And uh, and if you have any need at all for anything in your life for prayer, we will have some people available. I'll be up here. I would love to just pray with you either right now or even after the service because we don't want to miss moments where God just wants to Take care of our burdens and reshape us so that we become people that become like him. So let me pray. We'll come forward and then we will partake together. So Jesus, right now, we confess to you our need. We confess, God, our sin, our brokenness, our own proclivities of being, focusing upon ourselves. And God, we need you to reshape and transform our hearts. So God, meet us in this moment right now.